Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, today, of course, we are very excited to have Tommy Pico in conversation with Joseph Osmondson. Multi-hyphenate Dr. Joseph Osmondson is an award-winning scientist and writer who holds a PhD in molecular biophysics and co-hosts the podcast Food for Thought. And I don't mean thought in the way you may be thinking. I mean a woman who has had many casual sexual encounters or relationships, T-H-O-T, come to Skylight Books, my friends, and you will learn new things. A uh, widely renowned poet, Tommy Teebs Pico, recently won the Whitting Award, which he can add to his impressively long list of awards, fellowships, and prizes. He co-curates the reading series Poets with Attitude at the Ace Hotel, fancy, um, as well as co-hosting the podcast Food for Thought, and this time I do mean thought in the way you might be thinking, a woman who has had many sexual encounters or relationships, T-H-O-T. Uh, Tommy Pico has been featured in Time Out New York, New York Times, uh, The New Yorker. Junk is his third book. His work is widely praised. It has been called destabilizing, jokey, funny, honest, wickedly clever, canny, lyric, casual, serious, determined, uncanny, unpredictable, sweet, strong, wild, extraordinary, gleeful, freewheeling, intimate, liminal, subliminal, indigenous pop masterpiece. He is the golden light. Let us give him a warm round of applause. Thank you. Um, that was so damn nice. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, take it away, Joe. Hi, everybody. Uh, so I'm going to read for about 10, 12 minutes, and then Tommy's going to read forever long he wants. Uh, and then we're going to do a talk back, and then I'll throw it to questions from the audience. How does that sound? Awesome, great, okay, cool. We toured together over the summer in the Northeast and we're wearing the same exact clothes Literally. for the two whole weeks. So. Tommy always has his arms out and my nipples are always semi-visible. <laughs> um, we're also deeply trash, so please laugh and yell and talk back. Yeah, um, feel free to interact, come on now. Yeah, especially during my deeply uncomfortable reading. Uh, this is from Inside Out, a book that was published almost exactly a year ago that we actually launched together here in LA. Woo! It's fine. Okay, from inside out. One, growing up, I was always outside. For the first three years of my life, my family lived in the country a mile from any roads. My mother figured that my sister and I, running around naked, would save her washing our cloth diapers. We were always outside and covered in dirt, forced to take a bath before dinner. Or maybe I should start with a story. It's about a different boy, one I can name. I grew up outside. Straight boys never made sense to me. I thought I was straight then, but by fifth grade, I knew my place. I was used to being with the girls or alone. In fifth grade, an easy, athletic, and charming boy seemed to want to be my friend. Chad. It's like always a fucking Chad. <laughs> we had three of them in my class, but his last initial escapes me now. Maybe it was Chad R. He lived not far from me and sat with me sometimes on the bus. He even called me at night. And so what if, so what if it was usually just to get help on his math homework? But then it became only to get help on his math homework. 
and he laughed along with the other kids when they called my basketball shoes cheap, which they were. A bright, sunny day in my memory. I was standing under an awning at school, and I was wearing my Dikembe Mutombo basketball shoes, black on black, $39.99, while everyone else had their Jordans. A bright and sunny day, and the kids stood around me in a circle and called my parents cheap and my shoes cheap, and they turned their mouths towards the sky in laughter. I ran, bursting through the circle and away. I didn't understand. My parents were poor, but so were everybody else's. Chad was there with them, open mouth turned also toward the bright sky. That day, even my best friend wouldn't sit with me at lunch. Another scene, another sunny day. I was alone at recess and sitting on top of the monkey bars, which we weren't allowed to do. I was silent and still outside enough and so invisible enough to go unnoticed in my rule breaking. It felt good up there in the sun. I remember thinking, Chad R is your last link to cool, which meant let him use you, which meant don't let go, which meant cling desperately to him. He has something you don't, and your brain and his cool are a fair exchange. But I didn't. The next week, I told him on the phone that I wouldn't help him anymore with his math homework unless he wanted to be real friends. Translation, let me come inside. Give me some of your ease and grace and charm, or at least don't laugh at me with the others. We all know what his answer was. Chad was not about to let me in, and so I stayed outside but principled. I remained this way for a long, long time. Fuck Chad. Fuck Chad. There, the Chads still exist. I'm 35 and I still have Chads in my life. <laughs> Two, I've called him different things. Kalik in my writing, Tariq on Grinder, setting up our threesomes. I got that name from him. For his hookups, he called himself Tariq, one of his middle names, so that boys couldn't Google him after. They always texted him, though, or tried to find him again there on Grinder. I've never written down his real name. I know how badly he wants to have people, the world outside, and even his lovers view him as perfect. And on these pages, he won't be. But then again, neither will I. Three, when we were together, I couldn't imagine leaving him. He was everything to me, and a million things that I couldn't turn away from. He taught me that being beautiful is also a burden. It preceded him in every interaction he would have, and we all wanted to consume it, and therefore him. Most of his boys didn't see him as anything but beautiful. I always saw him as more than that, which is why he loved me and why he kept me outside. I was everything he had waited for. I was his salvation. How terrifying. His beauty left me chasing him. It left me always outside knocking on a door that only occasionally opened, a door that he alone controlled. What freedom to have no control to simply wait. Yes, the times he let me inside were ecstatic, but mostly I was outside as I had always been. Seven, you guys aren't laughing nearly enough. <laughs> After he dumped You're me. You're sad. I am so, I am, are there any Pisces in the house? Hi, nice to meet you. Seven, after he dumped me, because one of my friends was rude to him at an event. I'm sorry about that. I changed his, no you're not. I changed his name in my phone to Tariq to remind myself that I was nothing but one of his tricks now. As a friend of mine put it, I was just one of the boys he was sleeping with. 
But that was true even when we were together. Sometimes when I imagined that we might get back together, when I wanted to think him more than the sex that he still occasionally gave to me, I changed his, phone in my name, his name in my phone to Kalik to remind himself that he was a fiction that I had written and one that I could erase. 11, he had grace. What is grace if not control over our bodies? I never had that, but he had learned it in movement, in conversation, and in sex. So he taught me how to douche. <laughs> Y'all know. I had never cared enough before to find out what worked well for my body. I had used a brand, by the way, my mother has seen me read this. It was deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> I had used a brand that made me clean but wet. What was the brand? <laughs> so in case y'all don't know, I was using this, the Fleet Saline enemas, and I switched to the liquid glycerin. So just a bottom tip for everybody. Too wet. He liked a clean bottom every time. So I learned, and his brand, the Fleet Liquid Glycerin, worked best for me too. I would bike to his place. I was too poor to take the train. I would douche and shower, and then I would be ready. But then he started to complain, why couldn't I come over ready? We were standing in the hallway between his bedroom and the bathroom he shared with his two roommates. Because I have to bike, babe, and I get sweaty, and I need to get ready, and it's just easiest if I do it here. What I meant, I'm not graceful. My body melts and sweats, and if you want me clean, and I know you want me clean, then I need some time. What I meant, I'm your boyfriend, and you love me, and I love you, and that means you don't just get to fuck me. You don't just get that version of my body. You get the before, and you get the after, and I don't understand, and I will never understand. Not really. Why that isn't the best part of this, of this thing that we're doing. What he said, fine. He didn't like to see the process. He was used to hookups by then. Boys who showed up ready and then fucked and then left. He liked them showing up ready. And then he liked them leaving. That's fine, babe, but I'm your boyfriend. And I have a body and it sweats. I sweat when I bike and I don't have much grace, but I'm learning. And just give me 20 minutes. And then my body, my body and I will be ready for yours. Okay, babe? Okay? Fine. 14. Redacted. <laughs> By the book. By the way, I left all my books in New York. I only have two copies, but they are both for sale. That's why I'm not reading from either of them. 25. He taught me to moisturize my face so that I would always stay young or as much as possible. Someone out there knows. <laughs> 27, one reason that I didn't leave him, I was afraid that I would stop writing. I started writing seriously with him, and he always gave me enough confusion and heartache to work out on the page. Or at least he always gave me the courage to put my stuff out there. Somehow I felt that with him as my boyfriend, I could stomach the rejection of a writer's life no matter what happened. At least I'd have a hot boyfriend. I'm a horrible person. <laughs> And I wrote about him because I could, I could never quite work him out. See, I'm writing about him still because he was a mirror to me and I could never quite work myself out. See, he showed me the best and the worst of myself. Or he was a muse. And what is a muse but an unrequited love? As he was disappearing from his life, I still cared about words and I still wanted them on the page, which is to say that I still wrote. I realized that a muse is not singular and life is full of unrequited loves but none of them should have to break your heart again and again and again, and if that's what's required to make art, then fuck it. I'll just go live. 
Fuck fuck boys. 29. Yes, fuck them. <laughs> That's Tommy's favorite activity is fucking fuck boys. Uh, in college, my favorite professor did a demonstration that stayed with me all these years. Animal physiology, we're about to learn some science, and we were talking about how things get into and out of the body. Nothing gets inside the body unless it passes through our epithelium, our inside out. Our skin can be a barrier past, but even our digestive system has its own skin. Just because we've swallowed something doesn't mean it's inside of us. So the professor said, imagine this. Imagine I swallow a pebble tied to a string. He made the motion, eating the pebble, holding the string. And I wait, he said, for the pebble to pass, but I keep feeding more string. Once the pebble passes, he said, I can floss myself from mouth to ass. And he did this motion. <laughs> but the entire length of the string <laughs> is outside of my body. It isn't inside. It didn't make it past my cells, my epithelium, my inside out. It's all up in my gut, he didn't say, but outside my body. When gay men have sex, we say sometimes, I want you inside me. The bottom, the one about to get fucked, sometimes has to ask, to beg. I need you, he might say. I need you inside me. You could floss yourself with him, my ex, with Tariq, and he'll never be inside. That's how he was, all up in my guts, but outside my body. Uh, You're smart. <laughs> I fake it. Wikipedia. 30. <laughs> Uh, this is Wayne Constenbaum quoting Susan Sontag. I am a homosexual and a writer, both of whom are professionally self-regarding and self-esteeming creatures. 37, I know. I love them both. Redacted? 57. Uh, this is Jamaica Kincaid. I reminded her that my whole upbringing had been devoted to preventing me from becoming a slut. Then I gave a brief description of my personal life, offering each detail as evidence that my upbringing had been a failure and that, in fact, life as a slut was quite enjoyable. Thank you very much. He taught me that, or some of it. 66. I worry that it isn't really too late, that I might go back to him and to all of this. So I list the things he did to me and the things I did to him, and the list is long. I burn it and start again, burn, start again. Don't do it, Joe. <laughs> 75, he told me once when we were breaking that he can do bad all by himself. Tommy's always like, why didn't you break up with him immediately at that moment? Because <laughs> I was corny. <laughs> it's corny. He was a corny person, but he had a pretty penis. Enough. He can do bad all by himself. Sex parties, threesomes, boys, boys, boys. That cuts to the heart of it, doesn't it? As much as he used his power to control me, I knew the end was coming, but I could not let go. I couldn't let go partly because I wanted him and partly because the idea of someone else having him and his sex made me crazy. I wanted to control his bad in order to make it my own, but that's not love. I can do bad all on my own. Yes, my love, you can and so can I. I can do bad, I can do good, I'm sure I'll do both, but on my own for now, on my own or at least without you, outside your world, and finally principled. Thank you so much.
Wow. Thank you all for coming. Um, I know it's easy to not, I'm new to Los Angeles. I know that it's easy to not go places here. Yeah, it really is. Um, but uh, uh, this is like really special to me. And this is kind of like an entree into my new life on the West Coast. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to read from this book called Junk. Uh, for like however long I want to, and then um, we're like I said, we're gonna talk, and then we're gonna ask some questions, and then you know buy a book and get it signed. I'm here to do that. Please do it. Tax season hit me really hard, and we're about to get a new one, so I could use those residuals. Thank you. Okay, from junk. Frenching, Frenching, like mm, Frenching, <laughs> with a mouthful of M&Ms. I don't know if I feel polluted or into it. The lights go low across the multiplex, a temple of canoodling and junk food, a collision of corn dog bites and chunky salsa to achieve a spiritual escape velocity. Why am I in this cup holder? Because you're bubbly, dummy. But I feel squeezed cheese uneasy. You see, in faggot land, coupling is at best delicate precarious and rarefied. At worst, a snipe hunt. Love in the time of climate change. Should I be nervous? No, it's too dark in here for that. There's a light and a screen and our moon faces reflecting. Uh, this is an epic dummy, get your muse. Hey, old Janet Jackson. Patron saint of eternal utility, but selective relevance. I whisper feedback, feedback, oh, into the bedding. <laughs> Usually when you gag, it's because something needs to come out. So it strikes me as funny, haha, funny to gag while trying to stuff someone's whole junk in. Everything that can cross, I'm crossing. Eyes, arms, Shoulders, back to bed, come back here. The air is heavy feathers in midsummer, literally and metaphorically in my foul apartment above the chicken slaughterhouse where we wheeze awake. Your bangs look real perf and quaffed. And strangely, I smell like horror burgers and you smell like lavender doves and all the best stuff. You're comforting like getting fucked on an empty stomach. <laughs> Funny, but a little obvious, like a wrecking ball factory going out of business. And I feel held up, like you're examining my x-rays and nothing's broken. I'm like, why does this meaty, yuppie man want me to wake up in his arms? But Janet says, leave your worries behind. I'm trying to close my eyes. I'm trying to close my eyes. I'm trying to close my shutter, your forehead against mine. Tectonic San Andreas in the West Village, karaoke, piano, gay bar, whatever. I can't close my eyes. I just spent $13 on this margarita. Black Velvet is loud, an extra theater kid in the world around us. Yes, I rhymed margarita and theater kid because I'm a poet. This, this is where you come to lose yourself. And this is where I feel extra jagged, junk. Not immediately useful, but I'm still someone. I can't stop looking at people's junk generally, so you can imagine how hard it is at the gym. I try to keep eye contact with you, but your orbs 
soft and breathless, glow their orb light all over me. We're seeing subarctic farming in Alaska for the first time. Green in the hazel country. That's what I'd call the color of your eyes. I'm a brick in stadium lights, like so fantastically broken, but I'm gummy peachy keen. Junk gets a bad rap because capitalism. Junk isn't garbage. It isn't, it hasn't outlived its purpose. Junk awaits its next life. Google viral versus bacterial and then try to sleep. <laughs> I had a tweet once called Netflix and pills that went sort of viral, and you said that you were in a viral video dancing on a patio with a group of gay norms, of course, on Fire Island, of course, in a thong, of course, and it made me want to punch a pigeon. People buck like fuck when they feel their self-esteem is under siege. Shame is isolating. I write very specific baths. What kind of gray scrutiny do you cast into the mirror? and if being pinned down by light, the squirming. When I stare directly at you, you act like I spilled something, leap up as if trying to get a paper towel and then hang in the kitchen, evading my peepers. Is it wrong to call your partner a mirror in the sense that when we're together, I'm with myself in a way I can't escape? I court containment. An octopus hugged in a box, but you say that being seen is a prison. We're buffering pretty hard all over each other at this point. The cover is up to our shoulders. We lay in the couch bed of our preconceptions, separating. Sm the smell of warm bread, bacon in the 5 a.m., staring at our fingernails. Junk is a come up when you're treated like garbage of the state. I'm the standard of my mind. Smoke pulls back into the fire and the fire pulls back into the junk and the junk pulls up to the bumper, baby. We lay quiet in the buff, not touching. And I steady walk back to the land where I don't know you. Took us long fucking enough. Now I'm stupid and sugar free and realizing the only thing harder than writing is quitting candy. And the only thing harder than quitting candy is walking all day and buttering to bed in my body. But now that I'm fully inhabiting my cement, I'm finding the sacral joy of thinking into my rib cage. Convention says a book should be this long, but I'm only interested in writing as long as you want to read in one sitting. My aura is a strawberry shortcake dessert bar and the popular American corn snack Funyuns. My safe word is go to hell, Katy Perry. Pronounce caddy. Uh, I'm writing a sitcom about butts and counting. It's called Number Two. Uh, the tagline is turn the other cheek. Most times, I'm a maniac. Other times, losing an arm wrestling match. Sitting for longer and longer, but paying less and less attention, evolutionarily. My joint is Mary Jane. The theme is harmony of a gradient. Let's hold hands and walk to the water taxi and match in tank tops, but we call the tank tops wedges, and the wedges are a chip witch, and our cherry cokes are a summer afternoon where we can't do nothing but stare into the grass at the carousel park in Dumbo with the lap of the river and the dollhouse of lower Manhattan face fucking us while we neck and later 
face fuck. The days are burnt packets of fake sugar in faggot land, and Sundays are the blurry worst. I'm taking notes in therapy like, be more in the moment, dummy. Everyone, they say, is trying to quiet the buzz, but here, in the white waves, in the ring of your absence, I chafe to chatter. I leap into a scream of swans rubbing their swan cocks against the water's ass. Starving junk in the sticky soda of my boy meat. Spit on that rock hard narrative. Make it glisten. Fuck. Oh, fuck my head. A rabid Sega frantic 16-bit divination. My hands are huge Venn diagrams. The middle is where I miss you. Filling me. Honey, in the raw, it's odd to feel someone slip away. Drilling their junk inside you. The sky is still and shy and surfing. Newsflash, predictions are insecure. But here are the rainbow roads, possible paths. Come, Delta, choke my loneliness, daddy. More graphics, more resolution, more jagged chin cliffs, more anarchist sex dolls, more jewel teeth, more tears on the pizza, more hungry boy somewhere in the noise machine. The fat junk wags against my throat. Junk is charming in the hollows. A dude leans into me like cigarettes, half asleep. You know how some people are workaholics? Well. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Today's jaw lick, click, clock, sops the syrup leaking from my moors. I mean pores. One more time, please. Can I please ride just one more time? I got the tightest, pinkest purse. Sorry, clutch. Let's play a game called sociopath or gay man. Let's bottomless brunch. Let's, let's, let's pedal bagel with strawberry, tofu, cream cheese, toasted snickerdoodle smoothie, fuchsia puree, adrenaline, whole bellinis. I'll eat it, daddy. Baby, I'm the opposite of a foodie. I'm like a junkie. <laughs> Don't blame the junk for being discarded. Hey, do you remember in the free from winter, but not quite spring, after Poets Brunch with Molly, Amy, Chelsea, and Sarah Jean, we went traipsing through slushy Williamsburg and wound up at that store, Junk, where you bought all those old matchbooks for a living room conversation piece. I grabbed a June Jordan near the door as we entered the labyrinth and read random gripping lines while you lifted dusty old china, wiry broken radios, and hopeful cassettes. We got to the counter. You took the book from me, tossed it with the matches, and said, my treat. Well, I told you I'd write it into something. I'm in the junk shop of my 30s. A weird thing happens when you enter? Nothing. <laughs> you look up to a sea of button-ups and cuff jeans and casual pomade flip-dos. I've only ever gotten better at being my color with the banded lines and the tremors and the blues. Is it possible to manifest desire? I mean, to consider yourself fly as fuck without another's recognition. Touch all this junk. Our hands made for anything but touching your body is a ponder for almost every Janet Jackson jam. Consumed with being acceptable, dummy. That's never been in your vocabulary. You're thinking of exceptional, 
Duh, it's cool. They sound similar. The older I get, the more people move to the city, turn 26, fascinated by the wacky G train. Junk is its accumulation. Not as indistinct as thing. Not as dramatic as trash. It's important to value your junk, because junk has the best stories. Custard is like the most disgusting word. I thought the point of seeing each other was to see each other. How is being seen by me a bad thing? Dudes should talk less generally and deaf talk less about music. Everyone is reading the life-changing magic of tidying up. Basically an anti-junk manifesto, drippy furnishings on a sandcastle, the sound of styrofoam rubbing on styrofoam, I can't see exactly what the junk is. Is it that sight is possessive? The way to see is also to apprehend? It can't be that sight is isolating? It's like taking a dip with the water on all ends. You're suddenly your whole entire skin. The only thing funner than a junk shop is going wig shopping. Wigs are possibly the only thing I'd find suspect at the junk shop. It's hard to trust the old wig. <laughs> Day 27, I found fresh water and food. The water was in a fountain at the gym. The food was in a protein shake container, also at the gym. Sadness makes me punchy, but I'm a lover. A boy with the clear skin of a plant-based diet and whose sharp edges put the pro in protein has started saying what's up to me in the locker room. I've always wondered why people use religion to justify their prejudices because shouldn't your religion be challenging you to undo them? And then I meet gym people and I'm like, <laughs> I roll. <laughs> Maybe religion is just a place where people fortify their fears. I look at him and then look at me in disbelief. He's like the morning. And I'm like crud underneath a toenail. My stupid waterbed body of shame is such a shutdown. Oh, he death has an edible butt, says someone out of, out of the void, which means some butts are edible and some butts are inedible. Incredible. <laughs> Do I have an edible butt? Edible butt? Edible butt? Edible butt, edible butt, edible butt, edible butt, edible butt. That's pardon the expression bullshit. Edible is the birthright of all butts. Mm-hmm. I hate gay guys so much. There's this idea that only some bodies are worthy of desire and the others don't even exist. And from the guts of my anger, this glowing, I don't know. I stopped counting the days. The snow drifts, so many ways of seeing that reveal. And when the anger is distorted by empathy, and I feel you, it's almost sad letting go of our hazel country. Thanks. <laughs> um. <laughs> Thanks. That was didn't like, mean, didn't, that was mean to, didn't mean to lose it there on the end. I, I kept it together fine. as much as I possibly could. Oh, thank you so much for listening to the reading. I, I have a first question for you, Tommy. Yes? How does it feel to be in love? 
Oh my god, shut up. No <laughs> <one's doing that. laughs> He's okay. making up some shit based on based um, on the group chat. It's it's not interesting. It's fine. Nobody's He had a good. a good first date last night, which is like <laughs> <laughs> Jesus and, Christ! And, and, and Twitter.com? Because he likes the person, no, he's I, never going to see them again. Okay, so my actual first question. Um, Tommy Pico is one of the best readers of their own poems alive right now. Uh, I don't think, and I don't think I'm the only one to hear your voice in my ear as I sit in my room reading your books. Uh, your readings of your own work are so dynamic, so dramatic, so full of different registers and characters. I want to talk about how you translate that into actually making the work and putting the poem on the page in the first place. On the first page of your book alone, italics are used for dialogue, emphasis, direct address to reader, and for song lyrics. And italics are also used in the books for Tommy to talk to Tebes or for Tebes to address himself. You write the poem and the reading of the poem become each other. Can you talk about how you write for how things will sound or if the words on the page come first and ultimately how the poem becomes the reading of the poem in one singular project? Yeah, I mean, I think I've gotten to the point where I've been able to internalize. I mean, you're, you're hearing your voice all the time because you're like sensibly talking to yourself as I do. <laughs> um, to the point where I hear it in my head as I'm writing. Um, and also I do a fair amount of dictation as I write. I like dictate into my phone. Um, just just sometimes it's like hard like it's hard i write mostly by hand and sometimes it's hard for my hand to keep up with my brain so if i just like start talking and i record it eventually like sometimes i'll get a nugget of something that i use later on um and mostly it's just like important for me like tone is such a weird thing in writing and it's a weird thing to get an effect it's like sort of like characters and dialogue and word choice are, are all parts of like the the, the rocky world and like tone is kind of like the atmosphere a little bit, you know, like around the world, like kind of protecting it from like x-rays or whatever. And like, I, that, like if I get the tone right, I, I feel like it's, um, I, it's uh, something that I'm giving the reader that's an aff affect of the way that I talk. Mm -hmm. You know, so at least, even if you didn't hear it in my voice, you would hear it in a different voice. It would, it would, it would have an identity, you know? Uh, or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. I mean, I get like I I know you, but I could definitely only hear it as like the shouting and then quiet teams. Mm. Yeah, mm. which is a good. Th I mean, I think it's a good thing, and I, and I love the orality of the of the work. Well, and also just like in terms of performing, uh, like the the work itself is just like a it's like 80 pages of couplets, you right. know, and, and in order to spice it up a little bit, in order to give something to a crowd and to an audience, um, the, I don't have like the. Uh, 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 I don't, I don't have the visual of the book, so I just tried to texture, because like the book's called Junk. I wanted it to have several different types of textures, so I use several, several different types of textures in my voice as I'm trying to read it or whatever. Yeah, so I'm gonna jump ahead in my questions to ask specifically about that, because the book is, uh, you probably, you weren't seeing it, some of you I'm guessing have read it, but it is uh, just a series of couplets, and I think there's so much rhythm in it as you read it, that looking at it on the page, it's so regular. Uh, so your long poems, um, and especially I think IRL and Junk are, are poems of accumulation, you write in, in what you just read, junk is its accumulation. Um, and this seems to mirror the way you write about relationships, especially uh, the repeated line in junk, it's never just about the night in question. It's mm -hmm. like a breakup book. Uh, and you didn't hear that line, but that line comes up over and over again. So like the breakup is never just the fight. It's like everything that's led up to the fight. Um, memories accumulate much like junk. And so do resentments, hurts, and fears. IRL and junk both come at us relentlessly. If you've read IRL, it comes down the page very quickly, and junk in couplets moves across the page very quickly. Um, 
Can you talk about the form you choose you chose for each book and why, in particular, couplets here and why there are no periods at the end of sentences? Mm -hmm. So sentences are marked just by a capitalization of the next word. Is there a mirroring between disposability, uselessness, and the way things build up over time, often against our will, and a similar mirroring between personal, historical, and political? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> next but question. Why, why couplets? Uh, well, okay, so first of all, like it's called junk. Uh, I wanted it to, so like you go into a thrift store, Somehow, all of those different things smell the same. Every thrift store smells the exact same for some reason, but it's made up of so many different things. And also, when you kind of like when you when you when you kind of do the zoom out and you look at the junk shop or whatever, it for its uh, 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 for for its um, for its complexity and 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 for its sharp edges, it just becomes a mass of one thing. And so it is like a junk drawer, right? It's made up of so many different particular things. You pull it out, and it's all just one mass. And so I wanted, if you opened up the book and you started reading it, you would find those sharp moments. But if you turn the page and you tried to turn back, you would immediately lose them. Yeah. Um, and so it was like an affect of a junk drawer. That's kind of what I wanted the structure to look like. And then also like as a breakup poem in couplets, I thought that was fine. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the, does the couplet sort of speak to the coupling and the decoupling? Yes. Okay. But also, but, but, then, but the other thing I'm gonna is, I'm stop asking yes no questions. No, no. Uh, 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 that form was difficult in particular, but um, because I accumulated a lot of like material for the poem, but then when it came time to actually put stuff, I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. Right. I tried making it look like like as if each page was like a, a block of text, like a, a square yeah, yeah, of yeah. text. I tried so many different things, but then I, you know, I reread Garbage, which the poem is loosely based off of. It's a poem uh, Air Ammons wrote in I, I think '93 um, um, that talks about. Uh, disposability of elders in our culture as if they're just garbage. And mm. so that that thesis is what I drew junk from and junk is being like a liminal space and garbage is a book in couplets. And I was like, why don't I try to make this work as an homage to the original work, but then also something that carries a meaning forward into my own work. Um, I think you all noticed this. Tommy is funny. One of the things I love most about your long poems are their tonal shifts, and often they come in very surprising places, sometimes in the middle of a line. Uh, and you go from you know ge literal genocide to jokes and back. I've heard you call yourself a stand-up poet. Can you talk about how oh, you God. interrupt? I know, you're a horrible person. I'm sorry. That, mm. <laughs> I think that was supposed to only be in the group chat as well. Can you talk about how you interrupt trauma with playfulness and why the two sit on the page so comfortably next to one another? Are there other writers or comedians who you've looked to for guidance and craft in their ability to be deadly serious and also deeply funny? Uh, yeah, so short answer is I'm from an Indian reservation. It's a, my first memory is being in a funeral. Um, it's not a great place to be. I mean, it's a wonderful place to be from, but, but it's also laden with tr tragedy and, and genocide and generational childhood trauma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in that first memory, I think what it made it so distinct for me was that it was outside and, and, and people were crying and then somebody cracked a joke. Everyone laughed and then people started crying again. Mm -hmm. And so I understood that like humor and, um, Tragedy earn each other in a weird way, or lay. Uh, I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how to live this life without a pocket full of punchlines. <laughs> um, I don't know. In terms of like comedians or writers who've kind of done that, I. I think. Okay, so. Um, did you? Okay, so you know the comedian Monique. Never heard of okay. her. <laughs> and she has this special called I Could I Could Be Your Cellmate. I Could Easily Be Your Cellmate. And she goes to a women's prison and she does a stand-up set there. And it's like, she she does her routine, but then also talks to these women. And it's like, you get, there. it's something deadly serious. Yeah. And also, um, 
it has a levity at the same time. And, and, and it's sometimes hard to pinpoint those genres. There's also a movie called um, A Simple Favor. I don't know that one. It's like Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. Okay. That like, it was like a like a thriller, but also a comedy kind of. Okay. And it's like anything that kind of blurs the lines with comedy and something else, comedy horror, like uh, Get Out, for example, yep. you know, like that there, there are moments of of, of, of of terror and then moments of like, and there are punchlines as well. Like right. anything like that, that kind of mucks up a genre I'm into. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, the, and they teach you also in a way like how to do that in your own work. Yeah, because sometimes you just, somebody needs to do it to yep. give you permission. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have two left. And then I'm gonna throw it to the audience. Is that okay? Um, I just, I was gonna skip this one, but I really want to talk to you about that. I've actually never asked you about this. You're one of a number of poets that I'm reading these days who leaves edits and revisions on the page. Like Teebs is always correcting himself. There's like a stutter to it. You just pulling some from the text. You say brackish. I mean bratty. Moors. I mean pores. For a minute we were in the donut. I need moment. Uh, <laughs> and then you go. Speaking of munchies, it's okay to be wrong, dummy. That's my Tommy voice. Um, you acknowledge in the book the more I am Teebs, the less I'm writing because writing requires hesitation, the fear, the insecurity, and the reflection. Uh, this tension, the tension between hesitation or hiccups that you sometimes, how, like, what do you decide what you leave on the page? Like, I think of painters who repaint over the same canvas or back when people painted on canvas, sometimes leaving marks that you can tell it's a revision and other times, like, making perfectly the thing that was in their head fit better on the page. Usually when we edit, we try to make it perfect in the end. So how do you decide sort of where to leave in the marks of revision and where to sort of yeah, take them out? I think a lot of that came from kind of coming up in punk and like making zines a lot when I was younger um, because it's not about making anything perfect or good. It's just about making something and, and it being a thing that contains its mistakes as a matter of course. But it's so good. I mean, the way you do it is so good. It feels very, <laughs> it feels very, <laughs> it's, it's, Definitely deliberate. You make choices. Yeah, and but the thing is, that, like, who presumes mastery? Like, who presumes perfection? Who presumes that anything isn't going to be messy? I mean, the mm -hmm. thing is not to be perfect. It's not to have a, everything wrapped up. It's about like, you know, maybe the wrapping paper is newspaper. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, and like, it, and you could see where the tape has been lifted on and off again. Right. So I, I would never. That the thing is, like, that's just how I work, yeah. and it gives me permission to keep going. It's the only way, if I, if I tried to take out the mistakes, I don't think I would keep going because, because I'd be too intimidated by the thing that I was creating. Right. I, I, it, as a thing of imperfection, and I can come at it as an imperfect person, as an imperfect writer, that's, I can continue to write for as long as possible. Right, it feels like trying to publish a perfect book is a recipe for never publishing a book. I don't, I, that's a kind of anxiety that I try to live outside of. <laughs> and yet we're so anxious all the time. Yeah, but not about that thing. <laughs> Um, I always find new anxieties. Don't worry. Oh, you set so one easy. down and one comes the right back up in The world is melting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you are in love. Right, Tommy? <laughs> See, this is how fucking... This is how this is how entries on Wikipedia get fucked up. Yes, yes go edit his entry on Wikipedia to say that he's in love. All right, this is my last one. Um, you describe junk as a breakup poem in couplets, but that feels super insufficient to me. It is. I had to fit. It was an elevator pitch. That's copy. It's copy. <laughs> and I, I mean, that is in the text. There's a nucleation point that is a rejection from a man. And I think there's one thing our book can, has in common is we're struggling with this notion of dealing with a man we don't feel good enough for. Uh, so you write, I look at him and then look at me in disbelief. He's like the morning and I'm like the crud under a toenail, my stupid waterbred body. Shame is such a shutdown. Um, but fundamentally, that nucleation point 
seems to lead you on a journey through that revulsion and to something else, something better. You say, life, I look forward to living you completely with all my shattered selves. And you say, I'm bringing you Indian joy, Indian laughter, Indian freedom. My body was built for singing. Isn't singing so much better than some tall, pretty white boy? Absolutely. 152,000 times. Does anybody want to go to karaoke after this? <laughs> so, I mean, is, is the nucleation point of suffering, and then is the writing through that suffering part of what gets you to the transcendent joy of song? Well, I think, uh, I don't know, I feel like after breakups and shit like that, after any kind of rejection, getting, mm. you know, like, rejected from an apartment or getting fired from a job or anything like that, like, it fills me with such restless energy that I yeah. don't know what to do with, so that's why I turn to writing. I just need to do something with my hands and my body and all that kind of shit. Um, but, I mean, and that, I mean, that's as a point of nucleation, I guess, but... Um, so I'm in therapy. Uh, <laughs> Dr. John, everybody. Dr. John is a therapist. And, uh, 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 you know, he always c pushes me to, you know, he'll tell me a hundred times, like, don't, don't try to put it out of your mind. You know, let mm. it be in your mind. Let it be there for as long as it's going to be there. You let, look at it. Ask it what its name is or what its favorite color is. Let it sit down next to you. And at a certain point, it's going to get up and it's going to go away. Right. You know, I mean, or, or. It's going to be there, but there are so many other things that are going to be there as well. Yeah. You know, because at first, that breakup or that thing is like it takes up the entirety of your landscape. And yeah. then hopefully, it's like, you know, you zoom out a little bit more and a little bit more. And then the, the landscape gets dotted with other things and like new trees grow and like somebody builds a house and like there's a road that goes through yeah. and there's like a river. And all of a sudden, you start seeing so many other things. And like that thing is still there. But it, it doesn't encompass all of your attention anymore. So, I mean, I feel that way about junk, right? It's, it's that junk is like... The, the breakup is this such a small thing, and then it's this whole beautiful world that is like built all around that initial pain. Yeah. And I definitely feel that, re I think that what I was saying, that the restlessness of the way the poem moves across the page and sort of doesn't guide you, is similar to the way IRL moves down the page, I feel that restlessness in it, but I think junk has a sense of, um, What's the word? Arrival or or security? Right. That I mean, the it, others don't. it's almost there. That's the thing about that book is that like um, it it it's looking for um, it's looking for a kind of solace and a kind of quietude and a kind of uh, and uh, uh, it's looking to be satisfied, but it's still it's still too jumpy. It's still too vigorous. The thing that uh. it wants, it's 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 like on the other side of a membrane. It sees it. It's almost there, but it doesn't it doesn't quite get there. But mm. it's I, I have faith that it will. Yeah, I think so too. This is so abstract. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I want to open it up. I, I mean, if no one has questions, I have a couple more that I jotted down while Tommy was shouting into the microphone, <laughs> like only he can do. But I would love to open it up to the audience at this point to see if Anybody? there are any questions. Hi. We are trash people. Don't hide. Yeah. What would get it to the other side of the membrane? Well, it's still very, I mean, I think what's, what it is, is it's still, it's still very much consumed by the thing that it's trying to get away from. I think in order to get to the other side, I mean, this is just off the top of my motherfucking ass, but, <laughs> but, oh, thanks. Top it off, Joe. Um, I guess what I suspect is that uh, if it if it took us, you know how like when you're obsessed with something or you're trying to get you're trying to finish a draft of something or you're trying to f you're trying to finish a project and all you do is spend all your time and like let's say you have a deadline and you spend all your time thinking about it, working on it, and what you really need to do is take a day off. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it needs to do. It needs to take a day off, and then it might find the thing that it's looking for. Yeah. 
Thank you. I saw a couple more hands. We'll start right up front. Hi. All right. Good. How you doing? Happy Saturday. Yeah. Let the sun shine out. It's 75 degrees today, so. <laughs> The question is uh, the difference in time between Los Angeles and New York. Um, well, I the, the stuff that I'm working on is quite different now. I'm working on like narrative features, so like it's complete. It's not poetry anymore. Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but I guess I don't know. It's weird because there's a. This is gonna be a blanket statement, and I don't think that I mean this, but I'm just gonna say it. So in New York, there's a kind of urgency. I, I, I that place has my heart. I was incubated there. I became an adult there. I was there for 15 years, and it is there is an urgent sense that you make this shit and you make this shit now. You know what I mean? Because the the seasons change, and you've only got like two more months of being out here in the summer weather, and you have five more summers in your 30s. You know what I mean? Or there's like there 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 is a way in which that place really propels you to. It's it's there's a vigor to it. Out here, every day looks just like the day after it, and the day right, and the, the next day is probably going to look the same way too. And so it's kind of there's. I feel it just there is. It's so much. I mean, it's easy to to procrastinate anywhere and literally with anything. Writing is the dumbest thing in the world because like you can do anything but write. Um, but there just this there. Uh, this is as a new person here. There there does feel like there's less of an urgency to get things made and to do it now. It's like you can do it tomorrow. You can do it next week. What's that? Have you all read that Zadie Smith essay on the energy of writing in New York? Does anyone remember the name of it? Go home and Google it. Be like Zadie Smith on writing in New York, where she basically is like, whenever I'm in New York, I write books. And then whenever I'm anywhere but New York, I think about writing books. Mm. It's just like the energy of New York is that it's a place full of fucking sociopaths who are trying to do a creative, a big creative thing. I mean, that's like fundamentally, it's a trash place, but it has that energy that well, people then, are Well, then you're ambitious. walking on the street and then you listen to somebody say like, you know how some people are workaholics? Well, I'm an alcoholic. And yes. I'm like... Do write that down. <laughs> I'm like constantly like, write that down. People say the craziest fucking shit on the subway. And you're just around people all and the time. And you don't get that in LA. Yeah. LA is uh, a little bit, yeah, you you get a little bit less humanity here because you're sort of cloistered in, in ways that in New York you're shoved up in other people's human bodies. Damn, when you put it like that. But also there's just, I mean, and, and I just, I think I need to find out where more of the writing stuff is because in New York there's a, there's, there are several readings every single night that I always want to be at and I just feel so disconnected to any writing community here. If Tell me that's because you literally never leave the house to meet a person. Yeah, well. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the thing, it's so easy not to leave the house. True. Very true. Next question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Ooh, yeah, I used to be really shy, like super duper shy. Like my friend Chantal sitting in the second row, she knew me when I was really shy. But like Joe over here, like he hasn't known me that long. And so like his experience of me is me being like this. <laughs> well, there's also a, 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 a public Tommy and a private Tommy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. 
Yeah, no, but the thing, so um, uh, my father is a tribal chairman, um, and I grew up listening to him practice speeches in our living room. And he was an orator. He was a person who could get people on their feet. He was a person who, if he was not going to be a political leader, he was going, he would have been in the pulpit in a church. You know what I mean? He had a fervor about him. And I just kind of learned that. I mean, I was around it constantly. Like, how could I not, like, sort of imbibe that a little bit? Um and I would watch, I would look at his like speeches and he had like on them, like this is where I go up and this is where I do a pause. He had a notation for himself of how to slow down, get lower, spring up again. You know, I mean, he didn't, he doesn't have my vocal range. So <laughs> he's Nobody admitted does, to that baby. though. He's admitted Nobody to does. that. He's only heard me read a couple of times and every single time he, okay. The hubris of this man. <laughs> so they had, my tribe had um, commissioned me to write a poem that opened up like a conference on trauma that was happening on my reservation. And my dad is like, oh, I'm going to write one too. I'm going to do it just like you. I'm not going to rhyme. And I was like, I'm not going to rhyme. <laughs> Hashtag wow. Pomo. Hashtag way, uh, way to disrespect poetry. my whole entire career. But um, you rhyme. There's internal rhymes yeah, all over your I'm, stuff. <laughs> but still, um, and then he, and then I, I couldn't be there to deliver the poem, so I was like, I can record it for you. And he's like, I'll just do it. <laughs> And so I recorded a version so that he was going to practice doing it. And then like a day later, he called me crying. And he was like, <laughs> first of all, he was like, I understand what the poem means after hearing you read it. And he was like, I could never come close to what it is that you do. And I was like, that is a nice moment of clarity. You know, if you could have just had that for 35 years, I wouldn't be so fucked up. But, um, but yeah, so, so there, there was a part of that. Um, and then another part of it was like, I just kind of did, I, I started a collective and we did readings every other month and it was hard for me to get on stage and I would have to take a clonopin and a propanolol and a bunch of other shit and like, yeah. Um, and I, I, I was shaky and like nervous and weird and I just had to, do, I just knew I had to do that for years. I just had to relegate myself to being uncomfortable and being on stage for years and that I would learn it later on. Because I, I don't have a lot of faith in my ability necessarily, but I do have a faith in my ability to progress. I, I do have a faith in my ability to learn and get better, if nothing else. But that's incremental. And it did take like five or 10 years before I got to a modicum of the ability that I display now. And then I also like got a singing teacher and I would do like vocal exercises when I did uh, going on runs because I heard that's what Beyonce did. Um, <laughs> our spirit, our guy. Yeah. And just, and then practice. Like my, my friend Roy taught me that like, there's like um, preparation and uh, experience. Yeah. And one of those you have, I mean, you, you have, you can prepare and you can do it often, but one of those is kind of out of your control and one of them you can actually affect. Well, I feel like that's why so many writers are often not great at reading their own work because as a writer, uh, most of our failures are private. Like we get to practice our crafts in a room by ourselves. And then you don't get to do that with performance. It's not the same reading it in your room as it is reading it in front of a hundred people. But honestly, like that's like the benefit of knowing comedians. Like that's something yeah. that they taught me was that like you try your material out on stage and well, you, you bomb to. and you bomb and you bomb. You and even to. when you're good, you bomb. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. The ability to fail publicly is something that I think writers struggle with and that I've, through doing the podcast and through doing more performances I've had, to, it's hard as fuck to fail in front of people. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have time for one or two more. We'll do two more. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the cha- the the question was about um, the challenges of writing narrative, and I, you know, I didn't. It wasn't an aspiration of mine. It was just an opportunity that was given to me, and I took it. And, and it I, pays. Important fact. Um, uh, okay. So here here we go. So what <laughs> what what you have in a poem, essentially, I don't know. I don't know how to define poetry necessarily, but I'll tell you what you have in a poem. You don't necessarily have characters. You don't necessarily have dialogue. You don't necessarily have narrative. You don't necessarily have plot. You have words. That's what the economy of the poem is. It's all words. You know, those words can be made to do different things, but it's words. Like, 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 like fiction in that they have plot, they have characters, they have dialogue, etc. They can, you know, nonfiction. They screenwriting, the, all of these things, all these mediums have different stuff. I came from a background of just paying attention to the words. Um, the, 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 uh, the document of the poem is the art, right? And occasionally my reading of it. But in a, in, with screenwriting or writing for the screen or whatever, like that, that manuscript, that screenplay, like that is a blueprint for the art. The art is like on the screen. And so it was like, I had to learn how to, um, to, to, to understand like, how to give people who would be reading that like some sense of how to translate that onto the screen and said like you know I couldn't be you know like you you juxtapose things in in poems or or you know you allude to things and you you hope the reader will do the work with screen with with screenwriting it's explicit it's all caps it's like this she acted like this because her mom died you know what I mean like there's you have to take out the nuance and you give it gesture you know um, and then also just plot and what I had to learn like see I didn't come from I wasn't a cinephile I was a bibliophile I had never re- read a screenplay before I got this job. So like what I had to do was like really study that and understand that it's a structure. It's actually a very simple structure and it's an ancient one. It's not like, I thought like it was magic every single time and it certainly it is magical. Um, but there, from, for the most part, you know, there's three acts. Something happens on that page. Something happens on that page. Something happens on that page. You know, in commercial, whatever. I'm obviously not an expert on anything, but um, understanding that it's doable was the only thing that held me on day to day working on it. And then just kind of understanding like, you know, you you make these characters and then you make bad things happen to them. You know, you identify what it is that they want and then you make it as hard as possible to get it. And I was just like, wait, don't we all? It reminded me of like when I transitioned from T-ball to um, to Little League, which is like T-ball, everyone wants you to hit the ball. That's the point. It's on the thing and you hit it. And in Little League, nobody wants you to hit the ball. And I was like, this is some dumbass yeah, 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 shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do this anymore. Do you, I, I mean, I'm, we argue about this all the time. I think you're going to write more poetry. Do you miss writing poems? Well, that, the thing is, I felt like that's what I knew how to do. Mm-hmm. I like, I like the experience of trying different types of writing. I, that's why I, 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 I held on to this with open arms because I, I like feeling like a novice. Like I like feeling like I don't know what I'm doing because I like to figure my way through things. Because every single time you figure out a little bit more about yourself mm-hmm. and your writing and your voice and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was weird because I was like writing the screenplay and then like also working on the edits for my fourth book, Feed, that's coming out in uh, September of 2019. Yeah, this year. Um, and feeling like working on Feed was so relaxing because I. Like, I didn't know what, what it was, what I was doing necessarily, but I knew that that was my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I have worked really hard. So, like, the book-length poem is my thing, you know? And having to, so going back in between working on something that I, I deeply understood and knew what I was doing and looking at something that I was figuring out, that was, that was, um, that was helpful. Mm. But I don't, I don't think I'm done with poems just for now. Oh, I mean, I wrote four you, books God. in four years. Come on. I think I could, like, let the girls have some, let some of the other girls get some <laughs> just, of just take a break. Yeah. Can you just take a break and let us catch up a little bit? Um, I think we'll do one more. 
maybe all the way. Uh, sorry, you had a question actually before that that we missed. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it was about um, messiness and wait, did you? Yeah, yeah. It was. It's like the the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So the relationship between messiness. Uh, leaving messiness on the page and also, you know, juxtaposing different tones like uh, talking about, you know, ancestral familial trauma and putting a joke right next to it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, as a reader, yeah. I mean, I think I just, all those things are deeply queer to me and mm -hmm. I think also probably speak to your indigeneity. I, you know, I, I, I see them as very unsurprising from a, a writer like you and a person like you. Mm -hmm. I do Thank think, you. yeah, it's, it's sort of allowing uh, one's full humanity to be on the page as opposed to sort of like tr tying up all the loose ends and trying to give the reader a perfect box. The great American novel, what a fucking horrible construct, right? Well, yeah, and then also there's like that the thing about if you leave your mess in or if you allow yourself to, 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 to not be so um, preoccupied by perfection, you might actually discover some new stuff, you yeah. know, or, or at least like then you see you can juxtapose some stuff that, that, I don't know, maybe it is about juxtaposition, maybe it is about just trying new things, maybe it is about leaving it on the paper, maybe it is about like uh, uh, um, if you let the kingdom of the world open, right, if you're like, I'm not going to try to make it any certain type of thing, then you let in new things. I think you see new vistas and uh, if you're taking chances... It's all good. Yeah, and I think, you know, the poems are not easy. They're book-length poems, and the... The amount of times, the, with the, junk in particular, I was, like, watching the, t the TV show. It was, like, the, the, the TV show version of From Dust Till Dawn with, like, a huge goblet of red wine sobbing while working on this book. It yeah. was, yeah, it was hard. And as a reader, they ask things from you, but they also give you so, so much. So I, I totally... Uh, think those things are in conversation. Do we have time for one more or is that it? I think that's it. Uh, I, we, had, we had one more hand back here. I want to make sure he gets it. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm James. Hi, hi James. James. Well, yeah, so the question was about um, indigeneity and writing and how it, has that changed my relationship to to being kumyai or augmented it or whatever. And honestly, like the, the, the biggest gift that writing so much has given me was understanding that like leaving the res, I was terrified that l going out into the wider world, the, w the wider world, um, <laughs> that I would, I would just be less Indian. You know, I would be less Kumyai. But what I realized is that by writing, by putting things out into the world and, 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 and by making art and, 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 and producing as much as possible all the time, that I'm actually infusing the world with Kumyai-ness. You know, I'm making the world more Kumyai. And that, as a discovery, has kept me going in, t in times that I just I didn't think I would continue. Is it also just exhausting though at times? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but but the thing is like the but, yeah, exhausting, but then like then I meet people like you, you know, anytime I go on the road and I meet like young Indian people, young Indian queer people, etc., uh who 
it, it just it's just such a you know like what I wrote. I wrote for me, but I wrote it for you too, you know, and be like, I wrote it for us and mm. it's ours now and it's out in the world and you can't take it away. Yeah. I think we'll leave it right there. Thank you so much, Tommy. Yeah, buy a book. Buy books. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.